It's great to be here. Great back uh, with Life Changers and to be at your new address, your new fellowship, your new community here. It's a great pleasure and a blessing to be with you. I so enjoyed my previous visits and uh, I'm so glad to see you uh, making this new start. And my son, my son got in touch with me, Gabe, and said that uh, earlier in the season, Brighton beat Watford 3-0. So that makes Brighton the best team in the world. <laughs> I thought you might like that. You may not all follow English football, although I'm amazed how many people do. But anyway, we're going to talk at Matthew a bit better. Matthew and chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 14. And uh, we'll just look at some very familiar words, a familiar story. I trust that God will speak to us uh, through this passage. Okay, Matthew 14 and from verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send them away. They can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we've only five loaves and two fish. He said, bring them here to me. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves... He gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. When there, there were there about 5,000 men who ate, besides women and children. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, they were, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. And Peter said to them, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering in your name. Thank you for the wonder of knowing you, of knowing sins forgiven, the promise of eternal life. Lord, sonship, being your children, Father, we're so deeply grateful for all your kindness to us. And Father, we thank you that you want to speak to us, and we just invite right now the help of the Holy Spirit. Come 
Holy Spirit, rest upon us. Please be our teacher. Tune our ears to hear. Tune our hearts to hear. Lord, do us good here tonight, we pray. May we be strengthened in our faith, in our desire to know you. Lord, come, we pray. Bless your word to us. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here in the story, we see the growing popularity of the Lord Jesus. We see his compassion for vast crowds, moving among them, teaching them, healing their sick. More and more people are being gathered. Till here, we have some 5,000 men plus women and children gathering to hear what he has to say. This is against the backdrop of Old Testament stories which said that a great one would come, a Messiah, an anointed one who would be like David's son, a great king who would come. It's been promised for centuries through prophet after prophet after prophet. And Jesus is beginning to attract phenomenal attention, crowds beginning to ask the question, could this be the one we've been waiting for for ages? They wondered if John the Baptist was the one because he drew huge crowds. He said, no, 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 I'm not the one, but he's coming, he's coming. The expectation was very high, and maybe Jesus is the one. But as you read the story, you see this. Jesus is more focused on this band of disciples that he's gathered than he is on the crowd. He's not really preoccupied with agendas that the crowd want to press on him, though he's full of mercy and kindness, teaches and heals them. But his focus is on the twelve. He is preparing twelve. He's preparing a new community that the world's never seen before. He's laying the foundations for his church. Ultimately, or soon actually, 3,000 will be saved on a single day. But it doesn't say they were saved. It says they were added. They're added to what he had already formed of these 12. He is forming this people that he's getting ready. And if you read on in your New Testament, you'll find Jesus prays a long prayer in John chapter 17. And in that prayer, he says, Father, I've finished the work you gave me to do. This is before the cross even. I've finished the work you gave me to do. And he talks about the 12. He said, those you've given to me, I've shown them about you. The glory you gave me, I've given to them. The truth you've shown me, I've shown to them. This people, I'm getting them ready. That's where his focus was. And in this story, it's interesting to see Jesus is on a wave of popularity, but we read that he takes the disciples and removes them from the crowd and sends them, as it happens, into a storm. He sends them into a lake. He sends them into a frightening experience. He is preparing them for days that will come, which will be pretty frightening to follow Jesus. Called into stormy conditions. And here they're on a training program. I went to a theological college, uh, and you know, you have your program, you turn the page, and it says, you know, Greek or Hebrew or Old Testament, you know, all this kind of stuff. It didn't say in my program, storm. But these guys, in their program, you get storm. Jesus sends them into a storm. Now, if we find ourselves in a storm sometimes, and it may be tonight, that's where you feel you are, frightening, uncertain, being tossed about. It is no proof that you've lost the will of God. 
because it was Jesus who sent them there. They didn't suddenly say, what are we doing here? No, they just obeyed Jesus. He sent them into a storm. So, being in a storm is no proof that you've lost the will of God. And putting Jesus first is no guarantee you'll never hit a storm. So, these guys are actually right in the center of God's will that He is training them for phenomenal days that are ahead. And actually, you can see in this story something of what's about to happen, because in the midst of the pressure, He ascends up into a mountain, or He goes up into a mountain, to pray. And soon, He will ascend into heaven at the right hand of the Father, standing to represent us before God. And so, they are getting a miniature training program before it actually happens. Soon, they're going to turn and say, Jesus, what? Oh, He's gone. Of course, He's gone. And here, they're going to be in this storm. And yet, no, He's not here. He's up in the mountain. He's praying. So, they're getting ready. This is a part of their training. And part of their training is a tough time. Now, maybe that shouldn't surprise us when we think about Old Testament history. Because here, it says, He compelled them. In John's account, because this is referred to in several of the gospel stories, in John chapter 6 and verse 15, it says, they intended to come and make Jesus king. In other words, the crowd are getting so excited, this could be the Messiah. And their concept of a Messiah was often, dis it was just confused. That's one of the reasons why Jesus said, don't speak of this, don't speak of this. He tried to hold down the fact he's the Messiah, not because he wasn't the Messiah, but because they thought of a Messiah as a military figure, a guy like David. I mean, he's the son of David. Well, what did David do? Well, he killed Goliath, he slaughtered Philistines, he released Israel, he made them a great nation again, and that's what they're looking for. They're looking for someone who get rid of these Romans. They're, they're like Philistines, they're all over us. They have, we're, we're just defeated. We need this Messiah who will come. And, and could he be the one? He's God so powerfully with him. And I get very excited about Jesus. And actually, the disciples are pretty happy with that because they're getting an inkling. This great teacher we've followed, this phenomenal healer, no man ever spoke like this man. And he does amazing things. He feeds thousands. I mean, what a mind are we following? This could be the one. And they're on the inside track. So people say, make him king. And they say, yeah, make him king. I'm on his right hand. I'm on his left hand. They even send their mother along. So the mother can say, can my boy sit on your right hand? Can my boy sit on your left hand? Because you're coming in your kingdom. And they're all confused what that kingdom's going to look like. So Jesus, it says, took them and he compelled them into the boat. That's what it says in the margin in Matthew 14, 22. I, I use the NASB. One of the reasons I love the marginal references, the kind of insights. He compelled them. They're thinking, yeah, make him king. No, come on, off you go, off you go. Because Jesus is not moved by the crowds. He's on, a, he's on a journey. He's got something to do for his father. But these are very excited about the crowds. You know, sometimes when we're in a storm, we don't know that we might have been in an even greater danger. These disciples are going to be in a dangerous place on a lake. It's even more dangerous to get in this position where you could be exalted before you're ready for it, excited with, with visibility and power and authority. And no, 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 you're not ready for that. 
You're not ready for that. It's interesting how their training program goes. And you see this in the Old Testament very often. You see a man like David. You know, God saved him amazingly, poured oil on his head, anointed him in a phenomenal way, took out Goliath. He became a great captain in Saul's army. It's like he's a great one. Boy, this young man is so young. And he's been given such uh, predominance. He's got such high visibility. The girls are singing. Saul has slain his thousands. David has slain his ten thousands. And David's swishing through the palace and saying, yeah, that's me, that's me. I rather like you. You know, he's enjoying uh, life in this prominent position. And suddenly, spears are being thrown at him. Hey, where does that come in the story? Spears being thrown at me. I'm the Lord's anointed. I took out Goliath. I'm on course to become king. No, your life's in real danger. Suddenly he's in a cave with a handful of guys. Is that what I expected? I thought life was going to be good for me. And now it looks very bad for me. I read a wonderful book years ago by a man called Alan Redpath. It was about David. It was called The Making of a Man of God. You know, you can become a Christian in a moment. You know, even tonight you may not yet be one. You could become one here in this meeting. I know I became a Christian the first time I ever heard the gospel. I, I understood it. I came alive. But making of a man of God takes a bit longer. And part of the program for David was enduring hostility, difficulty. He wrote these magnificent psalms where he met with God in the pressure, in the difficulty. He, Lord, you're my hiding place. You're my place of safety. And he got to know God in the pressure. You find similar with Joseph. Joseph, he's like a charismatic. He's a young charismatic. He sees visions. He dreams dreams. He's a bit obnoxious with it. He says to his brothers, you're going to bow down to me. I've seen it in a dream. You know, not a pleasant guy to be with but he's getting an authentic vision from God. You know, I'm going to be the one. I'm the one you all bow down to. And then what happens? Well, they turn against him. They put him a hole in the ground. They sell him as a slave down into Egypt. He starts working in a guy's home, far from home. God gave him promises. He's far from home. He's in another nation. He's working in a home. He's just being a slave. And then one day the wife screams, he tried to rape me. She lies. He's put into prison. Boy, it gets worse and worse and worse. He's further and further away from the promises that God made him. Like another language, another nation. Are my brothers still alive? How can the promise be fulfilled? It's hopeless. And then he's in prison. And you remember the story? Two guys are put in prison with him. And one of them says to him, I've had a dream. I think if I'd been Joseph, I'd have said, yeah, I used to have dreams. Forget dreams. That's <laughs> how so I got in prison. Stupid things, dreams. No, he says this, tell me your dream. Tell me your dream. I think, wow, he still believes the dream. Beloved, can I just ask you tonight, you know, many of us, we know God's made us promises. Some of us have got verses underlined in our Bibles. We knew God spoke to us. Sometimes people put a date in the margin. Just, I know God said that to me. I know God spoke to me. You've got something that's so dear. And then time slips by and the situation doesn't look good. And you think, you're still holding your dream? 
Still believing what God promised you? Well, Joseph looks far from home, far from the promise. All he's waiting for, really, and he doesn't know this, is one more dream. Just needs Pharaoh to have a dream now. And the door swings open and the promises come into being. You know, you don't know how near the outworking is to the promises God's made you. And meanwhile, we're to be, the Bible says this, be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. We tend to think of faith as a now word. You have it now as faith. Now, the Bible says faith and patience. You inherit what God promised you. Amen? So this, this testing time, these disciples are on this training program. Joseph was on that training program. David was through that training. They're all going to come through to what God has for them. Joseph will see the fulfillment. David will see the fulfillment. These apostles will come through to great ministries. But at the minute, they're in a storm. And it's scaring the life out of them. They're going through tests. It's real pressure. So let's just come back to the story. We've seen a principle here. It's the way God works. He trains us. He prepares us. He's got a lot in store for us. But it's not overnight stuff. And it's not always easy stuff. There's a process that we often have to go through to arrive at what God has for us. So they're in a storm. And it's no proof they've lost the way. It's in the will of God. It's planned pressure. It's planned pressure. But it is painful. It's very painful. They're in the middle of the lake. And the lake is 13 miles long and seven and a half miles wide. Okay, so it's a big lake. And it's not like, hey, we were going to go by lake, but look, the sky is changing. Let's not go. No, they're right in the middle. There's no way out. This is one of the points of the story. There's no way out. There's no easy escape. We live in an escapist world. People say, I don't like this. I'll switch my job. I don't like this. I'll switch my team. I don't like, I don't like this. I'll switch my marriage. I'll get out of this. I don't like this. I get out. We're in that kind of mentality these days. Let's get out. But they can't get out. They're in a pressure situation they can't get out of. I know for myself, I, you know, I watch television sometimes as a, a commercial and I get the remote out and say, what else is on? You know, Wendy might say to me, I thought we were watching this. Yeah, but I don't like it. So we change channels. You can't sit in this storm and say, I don't like it. Let's change channels. You're in it. And sometimes we're in things we actually can't do anything about. We're kind of trapped. And they are trapped in this situation. There's no chance to walk away. And then as you read on, you see some very vivid phrases. It says, the wind was against them. Outward circumstances become hostile. Maybe for us it's finance. Maybe for us it's sickness in the home. I never thought this would happen. I never thought my parents, I don't know, I can't do that because they're sick now. I, that, it's, it's happened to them, but it's affecting me. Or maybe a child. All sorts of things happen. You think, ah, I'm locked. I, I can't escape this because, well, I can't let them down. I'm, I, I can't walk away. And here we find that the circumstances turn on them. It turned against them. The wind is hostile. They can't relax. They have to keep rowing. Otherwise, we're going to get cast on the rocks. You know, sometimes you say to young couples, you're both, can you both work? Yeah, we've got to keep working. Why? Well, financially, we've just got to keep going. Well, why don't one of you? No, we can't. We're locked in. 
we have to keep working at this. We've just got to pay the rent. It's the only way we can do it. And we think, boy, this is difficult. We didn't expect this. It's proving a problem. We're being blown backwards, as it were. And then it's just this phrase, they were straining at the oars. And it says again in the margin in my Bible, they were harassed in rowing. They're straining, they're straining, they're harassed. And the, word, the Greek word that's used is the same word that's used when it talks about being tormented. They're battered by the waves, verse 24. Battered, and it's the word that literally in the margin, tormented. Now the storm is getting out of the lake into the boat. And it's not only in the boat, it's in here. We're being kind of tormented. It's like you're lying awake at night and you're worrying. And you can't sleep. It's kind of getting into you. They're tormented. It's like, gosh, is the, is the devil getting at me? Life's tough. I feel like, the, will you pray for me? I think the devil's after me. People go through that sort of thing. I feel tormented by my circumstances. I'm in pressure. The lake is in pressure, but the storm is getting inside. And then one more thing about this is prolonged. It takes a long time. Jesus sent them into the lake, probably late afternoon. He'd been preaching and teaching. The people are getting ready to go home. He says to them, now you go. And he doesn't come to them, because we read the whole story, until what the Bible calls the fourth watch. That is between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. That's a long night. The darkness has come, but Jesus hasn't. I think, how long is this going to last? You often find that phrase, don't you, in the Psalms. You find the psalmist saying, how long, O Lord? How long is this pressure going to last? And that's where the testing comes. When we think, how, how, how am I going to get out of this? How long is it going to last? Peter, who's on the boat being trained, later writes an epistle in which he says this, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing was happening to you. That's part of our problem. We can easily receive a gospel that says, receive Jesus and everything's easy. Come to Christ and life will be easy. No, no, no. The Bible's a bit more honest. It says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though some strange thing. Don't be fooled. That, oh God, what's happening? And that, this can't be right. No, no, don't be surprised. Again, in the same epistle, he says in chapter 1, verse 6, now for a little while you may have to suffer various trials. These have come that your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though tested by fire, may prove genuine and may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. Your faith may prove genuine. That's what it's about, beloved. God wants to prove our faith genuine. It's not here today, gone tomorrow. It's not something I think I'll take up. Oh, this is tough. We walk away. God's looking to build something into us genuine. He wants to see these apostles stand in the fires. Down through church ages, there have been these who've paid huge prices because Jesus is worth it. And you get tried and tested and prepared for what lies ahead. Paul says this light momentary affliction prepares us for an eternal weight of glory. It seems 
a long time though. I remember once I was, I was uh, preaching, I was preaching in the UK, something we used to call Stonely Bible Week, and it was a very, very large conference. We used to gather about 30,000, all in tents and caravans stretching out on a large area, and God gave me a word about being an arrow. It was based on Isaiah where it says, he's made me a polished arrow. He's hidden me in his quiver. And I felt God really spoke to me about being an arrow. And what, an arrow used to have another life. An arrow used to be a branch in a tree. And then it became something else. Now for myself, when I got saved in my mid-teens, I, I did this thing, I asked Jesus into my heart. That's a kind of common phrase. It's not so much in the Bible. It's something we've kind of made up. I knew it happened. I, I received Christ. I knew I received Christ. But I was rather like this. I was like a branch that stayed in my tree. I asked Jesus into my life. I stayed in my tree. And from then on, I had this double motivation. I wanted to please, but I didn't want to please. And I'm still kind of drawing the sap that I always got from my old lifestyle. What, what Peter calls that futile way of life you inherited from your forefathers. I'm still living there, but I've asked Jesus into my branch. Now, if you'd said to any branch that's still in a tree, how would you like to fly? I think a branch might say, what's flying? How about speed through the air? What's speed through the air? What about hitting a target? What's a target? You see, until you come out of your tree, you can't become what God wants for you. What we do is we kind of stay where we were. I've got my job, my career, my family. I've asked Jesus in, isn't that lovely and cozy? And he's saying, come on. Like he said to Simon Peter, follow me. He left. He left his fishing and he went with Jesus. Even from the beginning, Abraham left the Ur of the Chaldees and went out not knowing where he was going, but he left where he was. He was going to become something that he wasn't before. And that's what a Christian is. He's a new creation. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for works he prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But you can't walk into them until you own up to your new identity. I hadn't grasped that. I thought, I want Jesus in my heart. That's good. That's safe. i got Jesus now, eternal life. Hallelujah. This is great. I'm still in the tree. And Jesus saying, come on, I want you out. And for me, that was like a later crisis. Happened like five years after my conversion. One Sunday, I'm in church, and I heard a message. I thought, God wants my life. In fact, I was in the meeting. I felt God said, I want your life, and I want it now. And I felt God said this to me, I won't speak to you about this again. Because I knew all kinds of times of conviction, and God was telling me what a mess my life was, and I just blundered on. And I felt God said, I want your life, I want it now, and I won't speak to you about this again. And that scared the life out of me. Because I knew he was real. I wanted to live for him, but I, I couldn't make that ruthless decision to come out. But then I did. I said, right, here I go. I lost all my friends and all of that. I came out and started another life altogether. And to be honest, it's a bit painful. It's like, here I am, this branch, and, and it starts cutting things away, you know, like a, a twig and leaves. Hey, that's part of me. Can't I keep that? Can I be an arrow and keep those twigs? Well, you know, arrows don't fly too well with twigs hanging on. You don't see arrows with leaves on them. Off, off, off. Ouch, ouch, ouch. 
but I'm making you into something. Things I could never have dreamt about. In my backslidden state as a teenager, God suddenly apprehended me. I want your life. I don't want to just come into your world. I want your life. I'm going to make you into something. I can't thank him enough now. I can't thank him. It was hard at the time, but I'd come out and lose all kinds of twigs and leaves. And then I, I, I felt God gave me this sermon. And actually, I went on. I felt other things about it needs an arrowhead, which is added to it. It's not part of it. It doesn't matter how sharp you make an arrow. If it hasn't got an arrowhead, it doesn't penetrate. You know, historians, they find arrowheads. Arrows are long since gone, but the arrowheads, they find these metal sharp things that have been added. We need to be added with the Holy Spirit power. It was when Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and preached on the day of Pentecost, it says they were cut to the heart, penetrated. The Holy Spirit gives us penetrating authority. And then we need feathers to keep us on course. We need the Word of God to keep us balanced. I felt God gave me a word about it, and I preached it. And actually, a few weeks later, I was in Kansas City. And I felt, I think I'll preach that word about the arrow again. I really feel it's still living with me. And I preached the word. And at the end, a strange thing happened. A guy walked up to me and said, I loved your sermon. Thank you. My job is making arrows. I said, Really? He said, you might be interested. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, when we get the branches, we have a machine. And in the machine, it has kind of channels. And we put each branch in a channel in the machine. We lay it out one after another. And then he said, we then pour water through the machine. And he said, then we put the lid down on it. And he said, then we turn the heat up. Well, really? Yeah, he said, that's what we do. And he said, we know exactly how long. Because the cry comes, how long? We know exactly how long to leave them in the heat. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, if you take it out too soon, if you cut it out before the heat's done its job, before the water has done its job, you take them out too soon, you're trying to get rid of that coating around. And he said, you can hack away and you can wreck the whole thing because you chop at it and try, it doesn't come away. And he said, if we leave it in too long, the internal wood that we want to make the arrow out of, it goes mushy. It loses its intensity. You can't polish it. You can't make it. You lost it. So he said, we know exactly how long to leave it in the heat. And I thought, thank you, Jesus. You say, well, we're in a storm. I didn't think life would go like I didn't think it'd be this difficult. When's this going to finish? God says, I know how long. I know how long. And these are in the ship, and they're, they was happening to us. We're being tossed about. The lake's getting into the boat. Our souls are getting stirred. We're getting scared of our lives. God knew how long, right? God knows what you're going through. He knows how long. Let's just look on with the story then. The next thing that we see in the story is amazing, really, that Jesus, who is up on the mountain, sees what's happening. Now, there's no floodlighting over the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus sees, and I love what it says in Hebrews and in chapter 4. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told this, that Jesus has ascended through the heavens, and we have a great high priest who's at the right hand of the Father, 
who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And it says this, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Isn't that wonderful? All things are open and laid bare. Lord, you can't see. It's a storm. It's dark. It's Galilee's. No, no, he can see. And the great fear we have is that God doesn't know what I'm going through. Has God abandoned ship? God doesn't seem to be around. And that's what the whole training program is about because soon Jesus of Nazareth isn't going to be around. These apostles have got to learn to live with heat when they can't see him. Why? Because he's ascended to the heavens on their behalf. And he sees everything. Nothing's hidden from him. Dear friends, nothing is hidden from what's happening to you. God, you don't know. This is tough. I don't know. I feel like I'm just, I'm at the mercy of events. I'm being tossed around by events. Things happen to other people. It affects me. It's crashing my business because of him. Now this is coming. Oh, I, this is just happening to me. No, no, no. Everything's open to him. He sees it all. And he initiates the answer. It doesn't say they prayed, oh God, come and save us. They just panicked. They panicked. And Jesus came to them. Isn't that great news? You see, Jesus sent them there. He doesn't abandon. If he sends, he doesn't abandon. He doesn't say, well, go off, you know, go and have a good old time on the lake. I'll push off. Oh, what was that? Where did those apostles go? I can't remember. No, he saw them. He's still responsible because he sent them. If God sent me, he's responsible for me. We need to know that. No, I feel, I'm a, I feel I've done what God told me to do. As far as I know, I've done what God told me to do. Then we can count. No, no, God sent me. He's responsible for me. And so he initiates the answer. And the extraordinary what happens, he comes to them. And I love what happens. It says, he came and they thought it's a ghost. They scream out, ah, it's a ghost. Why did they say that? Well, maybe, I don't know, maybe you can weigh this. It says in the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was on the mountain, Peter, James, and John, on another occasion. And while he's there, he was transfigured before them. In other words, his godness came shining through. Even his clothes, I mean, he's just shining. I mean, wow! Now, maybe when he's up there with God alone, maybe, I don't know, maybe sometimes then, he, his very being God, I don't know, but he came down from the mountain and he walked, and there's the sea, and he just walked straight onto it and walked to them, and they said, It's a ghost! Something about him made them think, what is this? It's a ghost. And then Jesus says these extraordinary words. Don't be afraid. And it says in your Bible, it is I. We're not often that correct the way we speak. It is I. But that's correct. It is I. But actually, it's fascinating. In the Greek language, the verb, I me, which means I am, does not need ego, which is I. The verb alone says, I am. When Jesus says, ego, I me, he's saying something very profound. I am. So although the text says in your Bible, it is I, literally what he said, don't be afraid, I am. Where did we hear that before? Oh yeah, Moses, who shall I say? I am. 
I am. This is God coming to them. This is Jesus, the Lord, coming to them. I am. I am. Now, Jesus often used that language. Whenever he says those things like, I am the door, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd, ego I me, ego I me. It's emphatic. It's saying something profound. In fact, it says this, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. And then even in the Garden of Gethsemane, it says the crowd of soldiers come up and Jesus says, who do you look for? And they said, Jesus, they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, he stood forth and said, I am. And they all fell back. You may have wondered, why did they fall back? Well, the actual Greek text says, I am. This stunning reality, this is God who has come into our lives, dear friends. We're not following some cunning device thing. We're not just even joining a lovely church. We're caught up with God who created heaven and earth and everything. And he's involved in your life and mine. And when we're in crisis and challenge, he will not forsake you. The very God of the heavens, the God of storms, he is for you and with you. And this is what these guys need to understand. This is what Peter will, Peter's learning something here. Later on when Peter's in prison and they say, we're going to kill you tomorrow. Do you notice the angels, it says they prayed and prayed. The angels came and had to wake him up. You think Peter learned some lessons? I think if I was told I'm going to die tomorrow, I'm not sure I would sleep very much. I didn't even sleep the night before we got married. I was awake all night. By knowing you're going to die tomorrow. No, he's sleeping. Come on, wake up, wake up. He's learned something. God's put something in him. I can trust this God who's called me. My life's in his hands. That's what God wants us to know. This is what they're learning in this crisis. He's there. I am. In fact, we would say more colloquially, wouldn't we? It's me. And this is our privilege that the God of glory sometimes whispers into your heart, don't be scared, it's me. We know this God in those terms. I'm with you. I can get into your boat with you. I'll look after you. This is what Jesus did for them, but they have to learn it, beloved. They've got to learn it, get it into their soul so that we're strong in the buffetings. We stand through the storms and difficulties. Just one last thing here. Peter, let's just see Peter. He's a bit hilarious sometimes, isn't he? But he's learned something. Jesus is walking and he said, if it's you, tell me to come to you. That's a smart move. He didn't, he didn't say, wow, it's the Lord, let's go. If it's you, tell me to come to you. That's giving the onus to Jesus. And Jesus says, come. And in that word, gravity's pull is overcome. It's phenomenal. The Lord of glory said, come. And Peter walks to the edge of the boat and walks towards him. And he's at hand. He walks right out to where Jesus is. And then it's just seeing the wind, he got scared. And beginning to sink, he cried out. And Jesus didn't say, oh, well, you had to go. Bye, bye. He didn't say that. Nor did he say, hey, well done, Peter. They're all laughing, but they didn't have a go. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, it's difficult, isn't it, Peter? You don't know where to put your foot down. It's quite hard. No, no, he doesn't say that either. He says to Peter, 
you little faith. Well, hold on, I walked on water, you little faith. Was Jesus grumpy? Did Jesus having a bad day? That's a bit, that's a bit grumpy, isn't it? Little faith. No, actually, Jesus was never grumpy. He never had a bad day. He only spoke the truth. And so, beloved, that was the truth. Peter, why did you take your eyes off me? Why did you take your eyes off me? Why did you doubt? The Greek word there is distatso, which means, why did you look at two things at once? Why did you look this way and that? Why didn't you focus? And we get like that. We look, well, this and that. If he had kept his eyes on Jesus, I believe he'd have walked right to him. Don't you? Just to see him, believe him, trust him. Not, oh, wow, what's happening to me? But even then, Jesus grabs him. He's his responsibility. It's so great knowing I am his responsibility. Even, even when I mess up, he will look after me. I'll be safe with him. He'll take me back to the boat. So tonight, as I wind up, maybe you're going through a storm. Maybe you'll think, why is this happening to me? I feel at the mercy of events. I thought this would happen. I thought that would happen. The studies, I thought it was going to be easier than this. This relationship, I pinned so much. It all went down the pan. I just feel I'm being tossed around. And maybe fear has crept in. You think, well, I don't, I don't feel safe. I sing the songs, but in my heart, I'm scared. And Jesus is training these guys for such a life. They're going to have such a life. But he's got to go through the training. God says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. God wants to develop something in you. Earlier on, we heard in the announcements that people who love to pray for you. I'd like to offer you in a moment if you'd like, oh, please pray for me. I know it's just been a storm. I don't quite understand what's happened. I don't want to flounder on on my own anymore. The church is a family. This is where we, the Bible's got over 40 one another things for us to do. Over 40, pray for one another. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. One another, one another, one another. We're here for one another. Not just to sit and listen together, but to be a functioning body, building one another up. And God wants us to do that. Let's say, now, Jesus, we're going to see something happen here in Cape Town. We've been praying, oh, Lord, send revival to this world-famous city. We're breaking out in new territory. We've got wonderful plans. And God looks down on you and says, oh, if only you knew the plans I have for you. But I need your life. I need you to trust me. Should we stand to pray? Lord Jesus, we, we're so grateful that everything's open to you. Nothing's hidden. You know our hearts. You know, Lord, when we've got scared or when we've got confused, it's just been hard. And fears have begun to arise. And Father, we're just asking you for your wonderful help, that we might feel your hand upon us even through my brother, my sister. So let me ask you right now, if you, if you just know that while I've been speaking, God has been speaking into your heart, 
you feel, gosh, he really does know. I want to invite you right now just to slip out of your row and just come. Let's just come right now. I'm not going to sing anything. Just come right now. Just say, excuse me, excuse me. Please don't miss the opportunity. Let's meet with Jesus. Will you do that? Let's just do that. Jonathan Edwards, that great, great theologian, said, preaching is for now. It's not for notebooks and later. It's for now. If God's spoken to you now, please, let's just come right now and let's be prayed for. And with those who pray for people, would you slip forward as well if you have a team of people who pray for people? And let's pray for one another. Let's get to God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that you love us. Thank you, Lord. Maybe you're a bit like I was, too, when I'd asked Jesus into my heart, but I'd never said, Lord, you have it all. That was a new thought that you wanted, you wanted to do something with me. You wanted to make me into an arrow. Gosh, I'd never thought you had plans for me. I'm just a confused young Christian. And when I look back now, I think, Lord, you've been so kind. Such an adventure. But he wanted me to hand over completely. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus.